When I came to study this passage, I did what a lot of ministers who've been preaching for a number of years will have done, in that I had preached on this passage before. And so I went back, and I had to go back to an old computer, because I realized it was actually nearly 15 years ago that I last studied and, and shared from this passage. And what shocked me reading it now was at that time, you may remember there were horrific stories coming out of Syria and Afghanistan because that's when we had Osama bin Laden. It's when we had the first rounds with the Taliban and numerous other groups. And we were hearing of women being stoned and they were sharing their videos on YouTube and it was horrific. And I remember, and I, 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 put, and I, read, I thought, it's funny how we can forget about these things. They are so horrible. But it suddenly made me remember just how violent and how real this situation was. The sad thing was, is in some of the stories I, for some reason, had kept on record, it was often a member of the family was the person that threw the first stone. The Taliban, or whichever organization it was, would see that the girl had brought shame on the family, and the only way the family could redeem their shame and carry on in that society was if they too were seen to condemn the daughter for her actions. But far too often, again, it was just the woman on her own. As if somehow it's possible for women to commit adultery without a man being present. It does say in the law, in Leviticus 20, that if a man and a woman commit adultery, then they are to be put to death. In fact, Leviticus chapter 20 has a lot of things that we would find very difficult reading in our modern society. There's a whole host of relationships in there that it says should not be tolerated. And in the same chapter, by the way, it also says anyone who curses their mother or father should also be put to death. However, I don't hear anyone making such a fuss about that one. We thankfully don't live in that kind of society. But the church does have a reputation for when people live a lifestyle that we don't agree with, of being those that would pick up the stones to hurl at them. But then we've also got other folks in the church who want to do, say, no, no, you can't, you shouldn't be hurling stones. And they get accused of being, oh, you're just being soft, you're being too liberal, you're using Jesus as an excuse. And in some of your Bibles it will say, this passage did not appear in all of the ancient texts, and it didn't. But it was interesting, as I looked into it this week, because I came across Augustine, who'd read, who said that the reason he believed that the passage didn't appear in some ancient texts is because there were too many people would use it as an excuse to commit adultery, so when they got a copy, they removed it. Or because the copies had to be handwritten, they asked for it to be left out. So it's by an act of the Holy Spirit and the Lord himself that this story is preserved for us. I feel slightly awkward as a man stood up here talking to predominantly women because I don't need to tell you how often the women get the blame for the ills of society. That somehow it's your fault. I've been at conferences where ministers and others have stood up and spoke to those that are in diaconates or involved in church organizations and they've talked about all the temptations and sins that will come your way and for some reason it seems to be the women's fault and i'm thinking i'm so pleased jesus doesn't see it that way if i sin he sees it as my fault but too often it's always been oh it's their fault 
This is a trap. And for me, this is almost a key passage of Scripture. I know I've said this about other passages because what Jesus does is amazing. As I said, when I go to work, and I'm sure you have the same thing, that sometimes people want to talk to you about your faith. And they will ask those awkward questions. But doesn't your Bible say that such and such is a sinner? Or doesn't your Bible say that this is wrong? And you're sitting with people going through horrendous times and they're feeling condemned because they know you're a Christian and surely as a Christian, you're going to blame them for the situation they're in because if they just hadn't done this or hadn't done that. And there's no denying sometimes, yes, if they hadn't done what they did, they wouldn't be in the situation they're in now. But they're expecting us to pick up the stones to hurl at them. But there's no denying that there is a thing called sin. There are things the Lord does not want us to do. And that's usually for our own good, not because he's just decided arbitrarily we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that. Those of us who have been in relationships where someone has cheated on them will know all too well the damage it causes. Those of you who in your families have seen nephews, nieces, grandchildren, small ones, suddenly lose their bearings as their family falls apart because the husband or the wife has decided they'd rather be with someone else. We'll know that this isn't to be taken lightly. There was a church, we've often taken scripture and added to it and looked rather harshly on people that have separated for what would be seen as perfectly valid reasons. And I find it difficult. I find it difficult when someone comes to me and says, but how can you be friends with them? Have you not seen how they live their lives? Is that because you think what they're doing is okay? And they ask you difficult questions. I want to remain faithful to scripture, but I don't want to be seen as judgmental and condemning either. And this is what they were doing to Jesus. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's actually a Sabbath day. It's a day of celebration, but it's deemed to be a Sabbath. And if you remember, earlier in in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus had revealed himself. He called God his Father. He's talked about himself being the bread of life. He is the living water. The temple, the authorities had sent the temple guards to arrest him. And they didn't because they said, nobody speaks like this man. We can't arrest him. He's bringing life. He's bringing hope. He's bringing joy. And they thought, great, we've got him. If we can actually put him in a situation where the law dictates what he must do, then he has to stone this woman. And it works both ways, because on the one hand, it shows he's no different to them, that he might talk nice words, he might say nice things, he might be very generous in feeding people, but when you get under the skin, he's just the same as the rest of us. And all those people that had found hope in Jesus would then have lost that hope. It was actually a double trap. Because not only, there were was, there was several crowds here. There was the crowd of those that had dragged the woman up before Jesus. There were the crowds that had come to hear Jesus. But there were also the Roman soldiers. Now, right next to the courtyard where Jesus was, was a Roman fortress. Herod had built one because they knew that this was the kind of area of the temple, the kind of entrance of Jerusalem, where trouble often broke out. Especially if you had two teachers falling out with each other. And so at this time of year, particularly, the Roman soldiers would walk around what we would see as battlements, but basically there was a platform, a walkway that went around the courtyard, raised one. 
And if they saw anyone causing trouble, they would have jumped in, arrested them, and said, who started it? The Jews didn't have authority under Roman rule to make these kind of decisions. They couldn't judge, be judge and jury. It was up to the Romans to keep the law. Yes, on religious matters, but this wasn't a religious matter. So had Jesus picked up the stone, he may have satisfied the baying crowd, but he would have then been arrested by the Roman soldiers. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And in the midst of all of this is the woman stood alone. And this is a sad thing whenever there is conflict, when people start standing up, and I mentioned it last week when people threw, you know, when they start throwing Bible verses at each other, when they start arguing over things, about, oh no, you should do it this way, oh no, I think we should do it that way, and they just start arguing. Inevitably, there are people involved that get hurt. You lose sight of what the conversation was about, and they've lost sight of the humanity of the woman that stood there, because they're so busy trying to prove their point, they're so busy trying to trap Jesus, they actually don't care what happens to the woman. And too often when people start arguing matters of doctrine or arguing matters of rights and wrongs and sins and what, wherefore, it's easy to stand up here and say, oh yes, you shouldn't commit adultery. Or you shouldn't do this and you should do that. But that doesn't necessarily help the person sitting here who's struggling, struggling to do the right thing, as we all have. And I say that openly. Well, I'll come to it in a moment. Because Jesus... And I I recognize this tactic now. Jesus is something clever. They've come for a fight. Jesus does not want to fight. So he's not going to fight them. This is something I do at school. If a pupil is misbehaving, I will go over to them and I will instruct them on what I want them to do. But then I walk away. I walk away because I'm not about to have a row about it. I've told them what to do. But I'm not going to tower over them and intimidate them into doing it. Partly because that doesn't work anyway, because they're all big lads and lasses and a few of them have learned they can throw a chair further than me. But I've not had those issues for a very long time. But you do that. You stand there, you tell them what you want to do, and you walk away. And it gives them a moment to gather themselves and make a decision without you feeling like they're being intimidated by you. You intimidate someone, they are just going to react like they like. You're going to end up with an argument, with a row. So you walk away. Once I've connected around the room, I will come back to them and I will say, oh, fantastic, that's great, what you're doing just now is brilliant. If they have ignored me, I'd say, I gave you an instruction a minute ago. This is what I would like you to do. Okay, I've already asked you the once, I'm going to go away again. When I come back, if we're not doing it, we're going to have to have another conversation. But I walk away again because I'm not about to have an argument with them. And sometimes the pupils need to learn this. They're not about to have an argument with me. They're not about to have a fight with me. I'm not looking to disturb the... There's a crowd of 30 pupils that will all quite happily stand there and watch me argue with another pupil. Gets them out of doing their work, and it can be quite entertaining for them, especially if they think that the teacher's going to lose. But in the classroom, I have authority. Jesus says to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. But when they first come up to him, he goes down on the ground. He doesn't even stand. He goes down, and I'm sure something like this, and that way, as soon as you lower yourself, you are no longer a threat. If you have crouched down, no one's going to find you intimidating if you're down here. And interestingly, he starts writing in the sand. We don't know what he started writing in the sand, and there's been lots of speculation. Because it's a Sabbath, it would have been wrong of him to write anything down on stone or tablet, but he was allowed to write in the sand because the sand could get brushed away, therefore it wasn't classed as work. 
I sometimes think he was just down here doing this, and he could have just been doodling. At the end of the day, what he was doing was not a getting into a face-off. It can be very difficult when people want an argument, even if you agree with them, if they want an argument, I don't know if you've ever found yourself on the wrong side of an argument that you actually agreed with in the first place. As someone's come to you, they want an argument, they've decided they're having the argument with you, you are now the worst thing since sliced bread, well, the worst thing, you are now the enemy, they're going to have an argument, and you do everything you can in the world to try and say, but I actually agree with you, I just can't do what you're asking. Or I actually agree with you, but they, 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 they decided they want an argument. Jesus is really clever. Well, of course he's really clever. He has all the power and authority. He just, no one's, how, how can you tower over someone if they're already cowering down? And then he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It's a phrase we hear quite often. There's a little twist in the language here. It actually says, let him who is without the same sin. Or a similar sin. I was trying to remember this morning, many, many years ago, when I I was going through quite a difficult time, uh, not long after my first marriage ended, for rather horrendous reasons as well. And I was reading a book, I can't remember if it was Christian in Complete Armour by William Gurnall or it was Richard Sibson, The Breeze Read, but these are very, very old books. And one of them said, in very, very common plain language, it says, don't ever think that you are the only person to have had vile thoughts, aggressive feelings, or lustful attitudes. Don't ever think you're the only person that feels like this, who thinks like this. Whether we put it into action or not, we all have temptations. We all have weaknesses. We all have times that our imagination gets the better of us and we imagine things that we shouldn't. There are times we think things and we're disgusted with what goes through our heads. You think, how, you know, you catch yourself and think, how on earth, what am I doing? What am I thinking about? What I liked when I was reading this, they were going on to make the point that says, but what reassures you about knowing that you are still a Christian, that you still belong to the Christ? that you still belong to the Lord, is because what do you do? We naturally go running back to our Heavenly Father like a small child that's hurt itself or is suddenly lost. We'll turn around to look for a parent. That when we catch ourselves and realize we've had these thoughts, we've had these feelings, we've had these emotions, we go running back to our Heavenly Father. That, not that we've had the thoughts, is what we need to remind ourselves. That's how we know that we are His. But He says to the men there, and it is all men, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now Jesus said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her in her heart. It's not even that they had to have done the actions. But again, he goes down on the ground. He doesn't stare at them. This isn't a contest. He's not having a face off. He's just said it. And then again, he averts his gaze. He looks elsewhere. He leaves them to think about what he's just said. And they're now faced with the option of Either do they, do they throw the first stone. But when they were the mob, it was really easy, that mob mentality, that ability as a crowd to come up and all shout. Because, of course, when you're all shouting, it's up to you whether you take responsibility. Oh, no, we were all doing it. It's a big crowd. You got carried away. You know, you can hide in the crowd. But Jesus, when he says, let him, uses a singular. It requires them individually to consider their own actions and to take responsibility for their own action. And the older ones realize first, not only has he managed to spring the trap and flip it back on them, it's now up to them if they cast the first stone. 
He's managed to do this without passing any comment about the law at all. He hasn't said whether they were right or wrong in their interpretation. He hasn't said if he agrees or disagrees with what the woman was doing. He simply has managed to convict them of their own heart attitude, their own mentality. And as always, it says the older ones left first. Dropping their stones, they walked away. They knew, well, maybe they were the first ones to realize their own guilt. To suddenly be aware of what they were thinking. And to be left thinking, what on earth am I doing here? What is it I'm actually trying to achieve? We all have those moments when we've got ourselves into an argument or a row. Where we've got in ourselves involved into something. And halfway you think, what on earth am I doing? Where am I? You, you suddenly come, become aware of yourself. And that's what the Holy Spirit can do to us as well. That we can just suddenly get that conviction, that level of awareness. But again, the desire isn't to drive us away from God. It's so that we can come closer to him and say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I have no idea what I was up to. And he desires to draw us in. He eventually stands up and he turns to the woman. He says, woman, where are they? They're all gone. Has no one condemned you? And she says, no, not one. This next verse is one that I think we often read over, but we need to take seriously. It says, then neither do I condemn you. It's almost like Jesus says in response, I don't condemn you because they don't. There are some difficult verses in Scripture. We are often called to pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. When Jesus talked to Peter and to his disciples about having the keys to the kingdom, anything you loose on earth, I will loose in heaven. Anything you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven. Imagine for a moment if it was our attitude and opinion of others that the Lord took on board when he had a relationship with them. We'd be in a slightly sorry state of affairs. It's interesting, Jesus didn't just say, I don't condemn you. He says, neither do I. They haven't condemned you, nor do I. And I think it means we've got to think carefully about how we speak to those outside of the church. For when they hear our voice, they think we are speaking with God's voice. And there are many, many people living in lives and situations where they already feel guilty. They already know they need help. They do not need our condemnation. But what about the requirements of the law? Well, this is why we're here this morning. We're going to celebrate communion. One commentator I read put it really helpfully like this. He says, if someone dies, it's meaningless unless they actually take the place of someone else who can then live. For example, if you are out at sea and you get yourself into a storm and you have to call the lifeguard out and the lifeguard comes out and they save your life, but in doing so they lose theirs, they have sacrificed their life for you because they've taken your place. Because of this action and many others like it, the authorities decided they'd had enough and wanted to take Jesus' life. Because we're forgiven, we don't always realize the depth and the damage that our sin is causing. But the sacrifice of Christ was to take the punishment for us so that we will not die, 
We are not going to be put to death. And we do not need to fear condemnation. Sometimes say that verse to yourself about something you've done. The Lord says to you, neither do I condemn you. I like the Michael Card video because at the end of it, I dare say the woman was spent most of her time with her head down as well in shame. And then when Jesus said to her, if they all left, she had to lift her head up and look around. And the only person she would have seen would have been Jesus. And he would have looked her in the face. Having looked no one else in the face that morning, he would have looked at that woman's face and she would have seen his. And she would have felt forgiven. Given the freedom, the ability to carry on.